Welcome back to Jessica and Carla's High School Reunion. This week we had the opportunity to catch up with Aaron Broomer. We've both loved seeing Aaron at our high school reunions every five years, but this gave us the chance to do a deep dive into his story, which was full of surprises. After Aaron left the academy, he went to Wash U where he studied architecture. He followed that by heading to Harvard for a master's degree, a decision that he says he sometimes regrets. After Harvard, he moved to New York where he met his wife, Lori, a lawyer, who he calls his person, and sometimes his adversary. They moved to LA for his job where they have lived and worked ever since, and he has formed his own architecture firm. Aaron talks openly about his fraught relationship with his parents, his own personal transformation to being a more open-minded and less judgmental person, how he manages his work team, and how he approaches parenting in an era when the kids aren't always all right. When time allows, he manages to sneak in some semi-professional poker, which he enjoys because success only comes when one is 100% present in the moment. This conversation was honest, refreshing, and absolutely delightful in every way. Listen and enjoy. What sickness did I have? I would call it midlife malaise. <laughs> Yes. Uh, you know what? Sleep <laughs> helped a lot. So I'm going to guess that it is uh, mild, whatever it was. And uh, and I'm feeling great now. That's good. Well, I'm glad to hear yeah. it. I'm glad you've recovered. You have had a busy um, week. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I've been all over the place. I was in D.C. I was, I was in Santa Barbara, D.C., Charlotte. And now I am back, and I'm so glad. In Los Gatos. But, in Los Gatos. But, oh my gosh, you got to hear the funniest story. I was shadowing an eighth grade student okay. um, this week uh-huh. and um, at a school. You know, we were working on a schedule redesign with the school in Charlotte. And I'm shadowing this eighth grader, and one of his classmates walks by, and he's got this sweatshirt on, this hoodie sweatshirt, and it says, Corn Dogs. No way. <laughs> Did you did yes. you try to buy it off? <laughs> well, like I was laughing so hard, right? I was laughing. I'm like, I love your corn dogs sweatshirt. <laughs> and he was like, Oh my god! First of all, who is this weird lady? Why are you right? talking like, to me? Why? Why is this lady talking to me? And then he was like, he looks at me kind of sheepishly, and he says, Well, it's the name of my baseball team. So I thought that was really funny. And I then I then I like was trying to explain to him, oh, which was a bad idea. I hope you didn't try to explain because there's no explaining. Well, I started down this road and I realized that I just sort of sounded like a complete <laughs> lunatic, right? 
Yeah. So then like totally randomly last night, I get this text from Chris Travis. That's like, when's the reunion? <laughs> so I told Chris, I'm like, Oh my God, I, I saw this guy. He had a corn dog sweatshirt. He's like, Did you get it for me? <laughs> that is so great. And then I was like, The universe is delivering I connections I right and left. I know. Ah. I know. Well, <laughs> 89ers, the, the reunion is September 13th and 14th. And um, we're going to we're gonna open up. <clears throat> a conversation with everybody who wants to show up on Zoom and we can brainstorm how to make it absolutely super fun and fantastic. And stay tuned for for that to uh, that Zoom to be announced. But we sure hope everybody will come. Yes, it's so exciting. And I know Chris was like, Tavia said you were going to have, I, I said, I can get that information like that. <laughs> and and I, I delivered. <laughs> So I was very pleased. I, I talked with Jocelyn earlier this week and she said, so what's your big 2024 resolution or plan or whatever? And yeah. I thought, oh, geez, I really overpromised on that. But for the three other <laughs> listeners who heard that and are wondering, I will share. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm excited. To <laughs> so my overarching 2024, my North Star is yeah. creating space for myself every day so that I can invite joy and magic into my life every day. And this started from, I really need to get better at setting boundaries. I really need to stop doing the things mm -hmm. that I don't really want to do. I need mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. just figure out how to let go of habits or beliefs that are just getting in my mm -hmm. way. And I thought that is mm -hmm. not a very inspiring goal. So I've reframed it mm -hmm. around joy and magic every day and realizing for that, I've got to create some space. And I'm trying so how's it looked so far? So far, really oh. good. And um, I actually think the FOMO I thought I would feel from saying no to some things, I have not felt. And I started meditating. And do you remember how you told me I should be wearing my aura ring during the day? I started yeah. wearing my aura ring during the day. And I am not, okay. I'm a skeptic about some of the woo-woo stuff. Mm -hmm. The first mm -hmm. few days I was wearing the aura ring, in a typical day, it was saying I was four to eight hours a day stressed. And zero to 30 minutes restored. Mm. And since I did this training where I go, I did one day, a uh, one 20 minute meditation a day for a while. And then I, and then they recommend you bump it to two a day, one in the morning, one in the evening. When I started doing that, I have not had a single day where my stress, according to my aura ring was more than an hour and 45 minutes. And I have not had a single day where my restorative time has not been less than 30 minutes. And most days it's close to two hours. I cannot even believe wow. it. I'm like, wait, meditation That's actually amazing. works? <laughs> <laughs> all this all time, this, you're like, it's a hoax. All these thousands of years <laughs> of people being like, this really works. And doctors saying, yeah, you should do that. And me being like, yeah, it seems like a waste of time. <laughs> 
I'm like, well, shit, that actually is doing something. Anyway, that's my report. Are, that's amazing. And are you using like a meditation app? Are you using not. a Aura Ring app? I did a are training you, called just... Ziva, Z-I-V-A. Oh. And the okay. way that this works is there's an online video training that's 15 days long. And the whole point of it is to train you to be self-sufficient. They do not want you to set alarms. They do not want you to have it have to be attached to your phone. She, the, the woman who does the training, her name is Emily Fletcher. She says, having your phone be part of your meditation practice is like holding an AA meeting in a liquor store. <laughs> that is so yeah. funny. So no, I'm, I'm like, I just sit down. For 15 to 20 minutes, every morning before I have coffee and, and every evening sometime before dinner. That's it. It's simple. Awesome. That's I know. awesome. So, well, I'll report back well, over over the course of the year. But today we have Aaron Broomer joining us. I know. I'm so excited to have Aaron. And um, gosh, Let's see. He is in California, in, in the LA area. He's an architect, mm-hmm. um, which is always that that career I wish I had. I always had this little part of me that would have liked to pursue. You could design run across the street to Antoine Pedoc's office. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so um, you know, Aaron was just such a bright guy in in school and I remember he was like sharp I remember him being super smart um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah very smart I also recall if I'm not mistaken I think he was on the volleyball the boys volleyball team like the first oh. year it started um and wow. I'm, I may be wrong about that but um I don't even remember there being a boys I volleyball think it started team. like our, our senior year Um, So anyway, we'll have to ask him about that. I had a great time hanging out with Aaron at the last, at the last reunion. And there was a really adorable Kim Ju photo of (laughs) of the two. (laughs) (laughs) Um, older sister was at Sandia Prep when you and I were there. And she was super smart as well. I just remember both of them as being very quick. And I'm really excited to share something from his senior page when we get to that point of the interview. <laughs> um, I can't imagine which part of his senior page I you're know. interested it's, in sharing. It is a, a treasure trove of, of um, wonderful things to share. And also, his senior will says something like, Aaron Broomer leaves behind a path of destruction. Okay, we're going to have to ask about both a- of those things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't remember him being a particularly, like, was he a revolutionary and we just didn't know it? Was he, I, um, I, what, was, what was going I on I guess there? it was, like, super smart and driven in the classroom and oh. annihilation outside the classroom. I don't know. Oh. We'll have, we'll, we'll ask. Hey guys. Ah! <laughs> oh, I like the beard. How y'all doing? Oh, good. What's up? I love the beard. Oh, my beard. Yes. It's very good. It looks very good. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I don't shave anymore <laughs> unless I have. To. 
Oh, it's so it's good, so seeing, good you. to see you. Thanks for joining us. We Thanks. were just yeah. Sorry, by the way, I look like I just went running because I did just go running. So I just want you to know oh, okay. well, I've been away for the last week, and when I'm gone um, work trips, I have to like get makeup for the fact that I just don't get a chance to like get out and exercise as much. So I went running this morning, it. and then I haven't had a chance to shower. So you're just gonna have to live with me looking like this. <laughs> oh, don't sweat it. This is as good as I ever. Look. You guys get to watch me vape, by the way, from my camera. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I'm gonna need it because um because I don't like talking about myself. <laughs> you know, well, anything you need to do to get into the zone of shooting, we're, yeah, we're exactly. here for it. Yeah. I can also turn my camera off. No, 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 don't do that. We want to no. be able to see you okay. and talk to you. Okay. We don't care what vices you happen to you can show up with a you know a cocktail for all we care. <laughs> It's five o'clock somewhere, I suppose. <laughs> I have my cup of coffee, so it's all good. Yes. This is mine. This is my coffee. Nice. Oh. My morning coke and my vape. That's how I am. This is my breakfast of champions. Golly Moses. <laughs> you're. I mean, I haven't seen a big gulp in an adult's hand in a long time, so good on you. Yeah. Are you not a coffee drinker? I'm not. I'm like the only architect on earth that's not a coffee drinker. That wasn't part of your licensing yeah. that you had to take. Yeah, no shit. It should be. I mean, I literally, I'm. Li I, I've never liked drinking coffee. I tried to become a coffee drinker and it didn't stick. Like I'm just completely addicted to sodas. Like that's it for me. You know? Well, do you remember Leah Levitt used to come to school every day in high school with a giant big gulp of diet? Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, yeah I totally yeah. remember <laughs> So that's good. It's connecting, another connection to the past. Well, Aaron, it is so great to see you, and we are so happy to have you joining us today. We're really looking Thank forward you. to this conversation. And Yeah, me too. Have you been listening to any of these? Um, I've, I've had a chance to listen to a few of them. I'm still trying to catch up, and I'm going to make sure that before the reunion, I've caught up on all of them. <laughs> Well, no, no worries. But if you have listened to even one, you know that we always start with sort of the same question, which um, we hope you will take in the direction that you want. We always suggest you share some of those really important um, inflection points in your life. But we start with the same question, which is what have you been doing for the last 35 years? Yeah, sure. So um, I'll walk you through it pretty briefly in, in, in a linear fashion. But um, so after we graduated high school, I went to Washington University in St. Louis. Um, I, as an, uh, it, it, I went to their architecture school. It's a four-year undergraduate program. Um, and in architecture, if you want to get licensed or be a practicing architect, you either have to have a five-year um, degree or you have to get a master's degree. So um, I ended up going to grad school. So, you know, I graduated in 93, like we all did, um, had a blast at WashU, and we can always go back and talk about that, but um, had a blast at WashU. And then after that, I uh, got my master's in architecture from, from Harvard. Um, and then uh, that was a, it was a two and a half year program. And it actually took me, I actually took a one year sabbatical after my first year there. And so it kind of stretched out and I finally graduated in 97. And we can talk about that as well, because going to Harvard at, at that age was a horrendous mistake that I made. Um, one of the big mistakes that I've ever made in my life. And um, uh, we'll, we'll come back to that. Okay. But, okay. Um, so 
after grad school, I lived in Boston for a year. That was 97 to 98. And I'd always wanted to live in New York and all the architects from, from Harvard and, you know, um, either stay in Boston or they moved to New York. And I always wanted to live in New York. So I moved to New York in uh, the, it was like September of 1998 and was living in Brooklyn, uh, just working for an architecture firm. And uh, I met my wife through a mutual friend. It was pretty random, but a mutual friend knew her and he and I had gone out one night to some bar in Soho and she happened to, he happened to be there. She knew him. He introduced us. Her name's Lori. Um, and so we met like a few months after I moved to New York and, uh, you know, we ended up getting married a few years later. Um, and, uh, we're living in the Lower East Side of New York in Stuyvesant Town for until about 2003. And then my wife's an attorney and she was working, she used to work at a big law firm called Gibson Dunn and Crutcher. Um, and they're based in LA, but they had a big New York office because she went to the UCLA law and then transferred there. And because she had gone to UCLA law, had lots of friends out here in LA. Um, and she also has some family out here. When we lived in New York, we would go to New York, uh, go to LA all the time and visit. And, and I loved it. I, I never thought I would because, you know, um, everybody has like a bad view of LA, but it's all kind of misplaced, I think. Um, so anyways, um, Around 2003, like a few things converged. My job, um, I was working for an architecture firm that was doing a lot of high-rise mixed-use residential buildings, and there was kind of a lull in the market at that time. So they kind of laid off all their staff, and I kind of went out on my own as an architect at the time doing just like little loft renovations, like didn't really have that much work. And my wife was working at Tyco International, and there was like a big scandal with the CEO at the time, and they decided to move their their law their um, kind of internal law office down to Boca Raton, Florida. And she was like, "I don't want to do that," nor did I. So she just started looking for jobs in New York, but was finding a lot in LA. So we basically she took one in LA, and so we moved out here. I also thought that for me, it would be a good idea for me to be practicing in in LA because when you go out on your own, like particularly if you're in the East Coast, you end up just doing a lot of apartment renovations. Like that's what you do. And hopefully over time you start building a practice where you can do buildings. In LA, it's a lot easier to get started and actually do ground up buildings and houses and stuff like that. So when we moved to LA in 2003, um, it took me about a year to kind of get my practice going. Um, and then uh, it started to kind of take off around 2005 or so. Um, also in 2004, we had our first kid, um, our daughter Delilah, she was born in 2004. And then, um, basically since then, um, I, my practice has kind of been slowly building fits and starts, ups and downs, but, um, over time up until now, um, I've just been out of my own, uh, as a practicing architect, you know, in my own business. Mm. Now I have about like 16 employees. I do a lot of multifamily buildings, a lot of houses, do some commercial stuff. Um, it's, it's, the firm has been growing a lot, you know, also in 2007, I had a son, um, his name's Casey. So Casey's 16, my daughter's 19. Um, Casey's a sophomore in high school and my daughter is, a finishing up her freshman year in college. Um, so 
that's that's kind of it in a nutshell how I went from there to here wow. okay you did a great job of that was like land speed record and yeah, you totally. left lots yeah. of little nuggets for us to follow up on so well done yes. well done <laughs> yeah i mean there's so much that we can talk about it's kind of crazy you know um, well, anyways, you you, well, you lead the conversation. You I would love to hear questions. about Harvard being the big mistake. What did, did you yeah. mean by that? Okay, so <laughs> okay, like, so um, <laughs> what was that? I didn't see what you. <laughs> I said the Harvard mistake. I was like, I wrote it oh, down yeah, yeah. in case I forget. Because I mean, there are like <laughs> the, I'm a little bit conflicted about it because at the time, like, I didn't know any better, so it's hard for me to like it's easy for me to say in retrospect that it was a mistake, but at the time I didn't know any mm -hmm. better. Okay. The, the big mistake, the, the big issue is that there are certain professions where like law or medicine, where, where you get your undergraduate degree, you go to, me you go to grad school and then you, then you go into your profession. You don't take mm -hmm. time off in between college mm -hmm. and grad school. Okay. Well, at the time I don't really know this, but, um, this is not one of those professions. It's usually better to take several years off um, uh, from college before you go to grad okay. school. All right. And WashU was an extraordinarily like nurturing um, place. It was a small program. Everybody loved each other. You had fun. You know, um, we had a blast. We, have, you know, like and the, the professors were very nurturing and helped you kind of grow just as a person, an architect or whatever. Well, when I was, when it was my junior year in college, like I didn't know what I was going to do. I wasn't going to go back, you know, uh, to Albuquerque and be anywhere near my parents, which we can come to next. <laughs> um, but like, I literally didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't really think it through. Right. I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go find a job and work for a few years and go to grad school. I was like, I should just go to grad school because I mm. guess that's the next logical step. Right. So, um, uh, so when I got in, I was actually extraordinarily shocked that I got into Harvard. I never thought I would. I, I had my heart set on going to Columbia because that's where a lot of my professors had gone and taught at. And I thought I had a better chance of getting in there. I just had a 3.0 average for my college you know, GPA. It was just 3.0. I'm like, I'm never getting into Harvard. I had a really good portfolio and I had really good recommendations from my professors because they kind of loved me. Um, and I wrote, you know, good, whatever essays and I scored well on the GRE and all that shit. Right. But I still felt like I just didn't, wasn't good enough with my 3.0 GPA. Um, but I did get in and I was pretty shocked and I got into Columbia too. And I just was kind of conflicted because I always had my heart set on Columbia, but everybody was like, no, go to Harvard. <laughs> like, yeah. like what, what are you, what are you struggling about here? Um, and Harvard actually gave me a lot of money to go there. So anyways, I thought, you know, this is the natural kind of logical thing for me to do next. Um, and, uh, you know, I also kind of naively thought it would just kind of be like a similar experience, experiences to what I had at WashU, which was, um, which was completely untrue. Like it was a, a horrible place, um, mentally, um, uh, you know, the, the, 
for me it was um the the professors that are there some of them are great you know for sure and the problem is that with harvard they have such a massive endowment that they can bring in whoever they want to teach under any circumstance right and because of the prestige as well so a lot of the professors there are like you know architects that i had their books you know like i idolized them or whatever um but they're all a bunch of fucking arrogant assholes you know um, who like phone it in would come in like to, you know, once every two weeks and treat you like you're dirt and, uh, mm. move on, you know, mm. also a lot of the students there are like that too. They have that same mentality and, um, architecture is a profession that attracts a lot of extraordinarily arrogant people and kind of reinforces that mm. arrogance. Mm. So, so I went from like this nurturing environment to like basically, you know, swimming with sharks, you know, for, for about, for the first year. And I also was with a lot of students who were also really great. And I made a lot of really good friends there, but they were all in their mid to late twenties. You know, mm -hmm. I was 21 um, and I was still just kind of a stupid little kid just wanting to, you know, fuck around and party. And, um, you know, it was just a huge culture shock. I was completely emotionally unprepared for, mm -hmm. you know, and I basically just had kind of a breakdown that first year. Like I couldn't really produce my work. I was um, struggling horribly. Um, I felt very isolated. Um, and I, you know, basically took a year off. Um, and I, that was the first time I'd actually worked for an architecture firm. I just stayed in Cambridge and worked for a year and just kind of like got my head kind of relatively mm -hmm. stable and went back and just kind of like just did whatever I had to do to get through that last kind of year and a half that I was there, you know? Um, and it was brutal. It was a brutal nightmare for me, you know, like it, it's, and it was such a dichotomy because I, I look back at WashU with extreme like fondness. Like that was like a pinnacle of my life in many ways. And then it went from that high to an extraordinarily, extraordinary low when I was there and if I had to do it all over again, I think I would have just gone later in life. Like I would have just taken several mm -hmm. years off and, and, uh, I probably would have been fine, you know, but it was, it was a very bad experience and, and it left me pretty scarred, yeah. you know, how, you, um, you own your own business now and you said you have, what did you say? I do. You, have, you said, how many employees did you say you had? I think I've got like 16 now. Okay. So how do you think those two ex different experiences has really shaped the kind of firm you've put together sure. and, and the culture um, that you That's you're... a really good question. Um, so there, I, I would actually add on one thing. Um, I've worked in a lot of different architecture firms mm -hmm. in my life and kind of, it was kind of a running joke between me and my wife that I couldn't really hold down a job when I was in New York because I got fired from like five or six different <laughs> firms and I got laid off from others. And, um, the, the big thing that I don't really, so architecture firms, um, can be extraordinarily abusive, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, just like the experience was that I had Harvard with some of the professors, because again, you, it's like this cult of personality with a lot of architects are such extreme narcissists. Um, and they think, you know, that they have complete control of your life. And there, there's also this culture that, you know, there is no separation between work and life and architecture and that making money is really kind of like, you know, looked down upon. Um, so I've worked in a lot of bad firms in my life and I've dealt with a lot of kind of abusive and arrogant people. So it, um, so having my own firm, um, I try to, you know, 
um, make up for a lot of those experiences that I've had and not let my employees have those kinds of experiences Mm -hmm. themselves, you know? So one of the things I do is I say, I don't expect you guys to work 60 hour weeks, you know, and I've worked at plenty of firms where it was like 60, 70, 80 hour weeks for four or five weeks at a time, you know, and it was just expected. So I lay out that with them, I don't have that expectation that they have to work late all the time, only if there's like a major deadline. And then, you know, if they have to work late a few nights, I'll give them a day off or something like that. Like I'm very just like, this is a, I I want you to have a good work-life separation. Mm. Um, I'm also very calm, you know, like I don't get angry, you know, I might get frustrated with certain things, but um, I've become kind of a much more calm person. And, and I try to be extraordinarily patient and calm with them. Um, Cause every, it's like having 16 children, right? Like the, you know, they're going to do stuff that frustrates you. There's going to be conflicts or whatever. And I'm not a yeller and a screamer. And I've worked for plenty of people that are mm-hmm. like that. So I think that it's really important to always show kind of an even keel and be unemotional and detached, yeah. you know, and that's kind of how I am with them, with my staff. Yeah. And, and they understand that. Like I also hire people where that we all get along with each other. There's no egos. Like if I, if I interview somebody and I, and I sense that they have a big attitude, like I won't hire it. I don't care how talented they are. Mm-hmm. I actually don't care about talent as much. Right. Which is another thing that, that architects only care about is talent. Like talent is everything, right? Talent is everything in school. You know, famous architects are famous because they're so talented, right? For me, that's actually not the important thing. For me, it's like, you know, what kind of a person are you, right? Can I rely upon you? Are you, you know, humble? Do you get along with people? Are you easy to work with? Like, those are the things that I care about, you know? Um, And then I think all of the other stuff kind of falls into place. Like, you know, if it's a good work environment, people are creative, like it'll be, you know, it just kind of works out. So when Carol and I were talking about what we remembered about you before you came on, we talked about, I mean, one of the things that came up was your talent, was how smart you are and how how even, you know, when we first knew you were 13, 14 years old, you clearly were one of those people that could process information really quickly and put something back out that sounded coherent. And I think that what I'm struck by is how those, that is obviously such a gift and it landed you in a situation at Harvard (laughs) that really didn't serve you at all. A negative in terms of how your journey unfolded, because if you hadn't had that much yes. talent, you wouldn't have gotten into grad school straight out of college and you would have had to go work and sure. you would have developed, you know, more emotional maturity, et cetera. And so it's really fascinating to me because I think so many of our classmates were very, very smart and we I mean, I prize that, right? And as you've pointed Absolutely. out, when you're, you know, our age, you realize how much of life is dependent on mm-hmm. your other skills and your other attributes. Absolutely. How did you develop the other stuff? Like you had negative experiences, so you're like, ooh, I do mm-hmm. not want to be an arrogant asshole who's impossible to work with. Right. But where did you develop that? So, okay, so this this is actually an interesting segue because we can talk a lot about my r- relationship with 
um, my mom and how I was growing up. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's going to start off a little bit indirect, but it's going to, it's going to come around and answer that question. So, um, I, in retrospect, I felt like I was actually a very kind of arrogant person, you know, um, growing up and in high school and even kind of for the first part of college and even grad school. Like I felt like, like, um, that, that I was always trying to show off, mm -hmm. um, make people think that I was the smartest person, um, and, uh, really try to kind of like push myself ahead and, and act like I'm the best person, like I'm better than everybody else. Right. And the reason why I kind of, I feel like, and, and again, I, I don't know if that's how it came off, but in the, the internal stuff that was going on with me back then, that's kind of what I remember. Part of that, part of that is um, kind of, I, I believe that I inherited or kind of took on a lot of the behaviors of my mom growing up. And my mom is like, just straight up batshit fucking crazy. <laughs> Um, uh, another, a clinical term for that is that she's got a borderline personality disorder, but she's just like crazy. Um, so she, and part of her thing, like a lot of what she does is try to, um, get all of the attention. Like she's a, a she's like this endless, like pit of like needing attention and wanting to be kind of like always at the front of the line, like everybody, all eyes on her or whatever. And I feel like I kind of took on a lot of those behaviors, hmm. right? So the, if I were to like kind of write a narrative for my life, it's that like I took on a lot of really negative off-putting behaviors, you know, that kind of pushed people away, right? That I, that caused, that, that, that didn't do, many ser do me any service in terms of forming relationships with people. And um, most of my life's, has been to try to slough off a lot of those behaviors and change them, mm -hmm. you know, change my mindset, change the way I think, change the way I interact with people and so on. And it became, you know, extraordinarily apparent to me, not just like as like some kind of like personal revelation, but also with my wife, Lori, like she helped me a lot with this, like recognizing a lot of this, that, that a lot of the things that I do and a lot of the ways that I would interact with people would put them off. They would make them think that I was arrogant or hard to talk to, um, or that I was very dismissive and judgmental, which I was. Um, and she helped me a lot basically to kind of like recognize, like, that's not the person that I am and, tr and figure out ways to, um, not act like that towards people and not think that not fall into those traps of, of doing those things or thinking those things that that cause people to be pushed away right so i i kind of in my mind have like this this demarcation point of like the new york time up until now where i've actually been kind of like maturing and becoming kind of like a normal person who doesn't fall into those behavioral traps that are both um you know behaviors that I kind of grew up with and learned and also that are reinforced in the architecture mm -hmm. profession, you know, which mm -hmm. is like this arrogance, this narcissism, you know, which I have been, um, I feel like I'm the opposite of that now. Like I'm quite the opposite. You know, I don't want anybody, I don't want any attention. That's why I was like hesitant <laughs> to even do this is like, I don't, I don't want attention. Like I'm not looking to become mm -hmm. some famous architect or, you know, or any of that stuff. Like I, I just like to kind of be in the background now, you know, so, and get along with people, like form good relationships with people, which is always a big struggle for me. You know. So how do you actually go about 
making that internal change. And I asked this, you know, Jessica's doing a lot of really interesting work right now around um, sort of pluralism and helping people to see across ideological differences. I'm really interested in how one actually becomes interested in other people and, and, and takes a more learning stance rather than a, I, I want to show you I'm right kind of stance, but like, what do you, what did you actually do? Do you think? So it's for me, the 99% of it is just recognizing mm. the problem or recognizing <laughs> the issue because I feel like I've like, I don't know if this is me, uh, a personal kind of ability of mine, but I think I'm pretty good at making changes in terms of how I think mm. and the way I act. Okay. So but if I'm not if I'm not conscious of it, if I'm not aware of it, then it'll just go on forever. So either somebody needs to bring it to my attention, or usually my wife, or I realize it on my own. Um, and she's very emotionally mature and, and you know light years ahead of me. Um, so so if if somebody just if I, if I'm just able to recognize the problem, um, that goes a, a long way for me personally to start making some changes. Mm-hmm. You know. What, like I, one example that I can think of is that we were at a party once and, you know, there were some friends of my wife's there who I didn't really know. And we were just kind of hanging out with them, but I wasn't engaging them in conversation, you know, because I didn't know them. And the way I am in social situations, if I don't know somebody, I get very, it's very hard for me to engage with conversation with people I don't already have an established relationship with. And she just kind of hit me on the shoulder. She's like, Aaron, why aren't you talking to these guys? And then that, like, that was like a click for me. I was like, oh, I'm falling into this thing where I kind of sink into myself if I'm around people. It's not real social anxiety so, so much, but it's it's just like this feeling like I don't I don't feel comfortable talking to people that I don't really have anything to talk about because I don't know how to do it. Right. But just snapping me out of that or making me feel aware of something that I was doing that wasn't very good like that. Then I'm like, okay, that motivates me to make the change. Mm -hmm. I guess I could say, yeah, it's kind of a motivating factor. Mm -hmm. It's almost just like solving a puzzle where you, where you're not sure how to do something. And then all of a sudden it starts to click and you're like, Oh, then that's easy. I just need to put a little bit of effort and energy into this and it'll start to, have like a cumulative impact of change over time, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of also curious, um, you know, you have had a challenging relationship with your own parents, it sounds like over yes. the, how is that? That's in- an understanding. <laughs> <laughs> well, how has that impacted the way you've shown up as a parent for your kids? Well, it's very interesting. So, so my kids don't know my parents at all. And huh. for the listening audience, I should probably explain this, right? So um, a few people, I think, in our class kind of understand how utterly insane um, my growing up experience was. Like, I would say probably Brad Bryan knows. Laura Weinstein probably knows to some degree because she knew my parents from the synagogue. Mm-hmm. And then Jeff Eaton, because he and I were very close kind of towards the end of senior year. Um so my okay so i don't need to go into too much detail about my mom but it was like living in a crazy house right one where one day things were kind of normal and you know everything could be going fine and then all of a sudden like something would happen like we would get in a fight about something but but it but it would like um uh take the pull the rug out from whatever stability 
you kind of internally felt. So there was, there was no stability in my house mm -hmm. at all. Um, it was like a, a, an emotional kind of like, you know, it's, it's very hard for me to describe. Like there were days where it was fine. There were days where it was just pure madness. And I was like, where the fuck am I? And I felt that way my whole growing up experience. Like, where am I? Why am I here? I need to escape from this situation. And I don't want people to think that my parents were like abusive in any way. They were not. They were just like a combination of stupid, crazy, um, inconsistent, um, you know, uh, giving you love, pulling it away, like on a constant basis, constant, mm -hmm. right? So I kind of lived my whole life during that time, just wanting to get out, you know, wanting to get out of that place. I just want um, to interject that I totally, I mean, I didn't grow up in that situation, but as an adult, I made a very close friendship with someone and discovered three or four years into the friendship. I mean, this was someone I saw multiple times a week. We, we, that she had borderline personality disorder was the biggest oh, yes. mind fuck of Oh God, because I know, it right? It was so confusing. And it was, I was an angel oh, yeah. one like, day. What did I like, do? what if <laughs> the best person in the world and the most important person in her life? And then shortly after, right. I was the worst person and made me, Yes. I, I just, I, I thought, oh, well, I'm the problem here. And unwinding right, myself right, right. from that. Totally. And really, similar to what you did, what I, I had to basically just, completely sever my friendship with her because it was totally. driving me nuts. And oh, totally. And when you're under the, imagine being under the control yeah, of that person growing up and then she had a husband, my dad, who would just like went along with everything yeah. with her, you know, like he was very passive yeah. and codependent. So that behavior, by the way, is very interesting to me. It's called right. splitting where you, where you either are somebody's best friend and they're in, they're in with you, like they are. They are so close to you, right? That they're 100 percent in. But then you could do something like look at them the wrong way, or not laugh at a joke, mm -hmm. or you know, mm -hmm. do something super yeah. minor, right? And then you're you're a mortal enemy, right? You're a mortal enemy. And I took on that behavior with people in relationships that I had too, where where like I was. It's almost like you have no. Those people have like no outer protective layer. Right. No, um, they're almost like burn victims where like a, just a slight, just a slight touch will cause them enormous amount of pain and then they hate you forever. Right. And I was doing that with some people um, uh, when I was in college, um, relationships that I had with people like I would do that. Like I would they were like in with me and then all of a sudden they were on the outs. Um, and my mom did with that me on a daily basis, you know, like I'm exaggerating. Right. But the, but that's how it felt like on a daily basis, like I was in with her and then I was like completely rejected and it was just an extraordinarily unstable situation for me to be in. And I in turn was extremely unstable because of it, you know, like I felt like I was very mentally unstable in high school and, and, um, get going to college helped stabilize me mm -hmm. to some degree. Um, but it was, uh, you know, I, I've only until, um, well, okay. So where was I going? So the, so when I went to college, I kind of vowed that I was never going to speak to my parents again. 
And um, they actually had threatened to not let me go to college like a few days before for some stupid shit. Like, I don't even know what it was. And so it was just like this massive roller coaster ride. And by the time I, I like, and, and when I went to college, like, I just got on a plane with a suitcase. Like, I didn't have my parents come move me in or whatever. Um, I just went and I was like, I'm never going back. See ya, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, a few months passed and things kind of like got a little bit better between me and my parents. And I kind of maintained a relationship with them over a long time up until I had my first kid. And then, you know, um, it, but it was always kind of ups and downs, just like talking with them now and again, having a few vacations with them, which were just really kind of torturous. But but we kind of tolerated them, me and my wife, for a long time. And then when we had my daughter... Um, that's when things really kind of changed between me and them, uh, where, where they just kind of descended super fast. So, um, my mom hates, she did, did that splitting thing with my dad's side of the family that live in Montreal. She like cut them off from the family, isolated my dad from my dad's side of the family. And also in turn kind of did that with us too. Like me and my sister, we kind of had lost touch with my dad's side of the family. But when we had my daughter, Delilah, they started to get back in touch with us and we started forming a relationship with them again. And it was just kind of stupid that we had fallen into my mom's bullshit of like isolating them or not talking to them. And and my wife and I were like, why? Why did we fall into that? Like, why did we do that? Because they're awesome people. We love them. And um, that caused a huge blow between me and my mom, um, where she was like, you know, sending me like these twisted like stream of consciousness emails about how horrible parents we are and our daughter is so fucked up and she's just like a baby <laughs> like, <laughs> um and uh just i, I wish i kind of saved the emails but i didn't and i was like um i basically just after, like for uh, i would say about a six months after my daughter was born i basically cut her cut them off right i was like I don't want any more toxic people in my life anymore, except for myself. And that's it. <laughs> you know, like no more toxic people. So I basically haven't spoken to them in, in maybe like, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe 10 or 15 years. I don't know. They don't live in Albuquerque anymore. They live in Atlanta, which is where my sister lives. And they still have a relationship with her, but, but she's um, not too happy with that, but she kind of has no choice. Um, so in terms of my, the way that I deal with my kids and my relationship with them. So, um, again, it's, it's parallel to how I run my firm. Like, like I try to not fall into the behaviors and do the negative things that I experience. Right. So, um, I try to be very kind of communicative and, um, not like scream at them <laughs> or, or not, you know, like, okay, so at a base level, I make sure that they know that I love, like, there's always, like, that support there. And, and um, you know, they, they definitely have a really good foundation. I also, here's another thing. One of the, if I find that they're, they're doing, they're, they're um, acting in certain ways that I think is off-putting to other people, I call them on it, right? Delilah, she's very smart, and she can also be very arrogant and judgmental and dismissive. Um, and whenever I see those behaviors, I immediately hone in on it and I'm like, you can't act that way. Um, you're, you're going to alienate people around you. And I don't want you to make a lot of the same mistakes that I made and stuff like that. Um, so I just think that I'm very conscious to not make a lot of this, the mistakes that my parents made. I make other mistakes, but at least not those ones. You know? 
Oh, um, that's so true, right? So We're all doing something to screw up our kids, then, but different than our parents. Oh yeah, did, totally. You know? <laughs> and I, I just think that that just um, just having an awareness of what's going on with them emotionally mm-hmm. is like the key, right? Because I would say my parents and our parents, our generation of parents weren't like that, right? They weren't, they didn't try to be in tune with what's going on with us internally. And, and that's what I try to do the most. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, that's about, that's, that's all I can kind of think of now in terms of my kids. Yeah, There's a lot of stuff we can talk about them. Well, one of the things that I was wondering about, and Carly, you, you asked a little bit about this, but I was wondering if you could expand on it. When a lot of times I think people that are super creative are awesome at the creative side of things, but are not good at the business side of things. And you're running. Oh, tell me about it, bro. <laughs> okay. So, so here's what I'm worried about. Like if, when I say I have 16 employees, yeah. right. I think that people must think that I'm like hugely successful, like financially, like they might, or they uh-huh. might think that that is so not the case. Like, um, it is a, a huge financial struggle for me. And I'm actually coming to the point now where I'm actually making a decent amount of money, but I've had a business coach for the past three years, mm. you know, that's essentially helped me turn the mm. business around. Right. And again, in architecture, there's this myth that somehow being a profitable business or making money is very like taboo or, or like, you don't, you don't, that's not why you're doing it. You're doing it for the love of buildings mm-hmm. or whatever, which yeah. is bullshit. Pure um, art. <laughs> if you're, yeah, I know. Right. If you're running a business, even if you're an architect, so if you're an architect with a practice, you're no longer an architect. You are a business mm-hmm. person who happens to run an architecture uh-huh. firm. Right. Uh-huh. But it's very hard for people to kind of make that mental leap um, in architecture. And for me, there were years where I lost money. There were years, years when I didn't make any money. There was years where I made a tiny little bit of money, you know, and it was basically just like kind of a hobby that was taking up like, you know, seven days a week of work, working constantly hmm. um, for no financial mm-hmm. gain, you know, and I had and I, I'm actually really good um, with numbers and doing Excel sheets and I love doing spreadsheets and stuff like that, but I never did it cause I was just so caught up in just trying to get the work done and trying to bring in more work. I never separated myself and went to like a 10,000 foot level and was like, okay, is my business profitable? Right. For like 10 or 12 years, you know, just, I was trying to just keep it alive, like just keep it alive and hopefully somehow in the future it all work out. The past several years, I've been focusing much more on the business side of things, running a firm that has its own processes and where I can delegate stuff so I can focus on only the business stuff and not taking on projects that aren't going to be profitable, figuring out ways to make the projects profitable and figuring out ways to make money. Um, And it's been a huge struggle and a big strain on my marriage, actually, um, because of it. You know, there were times when I lost money and my wife and I almost got divorced because of it. She couldn't, she was like, what the fuck are you doing? She's a lawyer. She makes good money. She's like, I'm supporting this family. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Um, how could you not know if, if this you're going to, you're going to lose Sorry. money or not. And it was a huge, huge problem for us. And we, we were literally on the verge of divorce. And, and over the past several years, I've, I've kind of turned it around and now 
each month I, I'm profitable, you know, like that's just a basic right. thing, right? Try to make the business profitable. And that's essentially the focus of my life right now is to create this business that kind of can kind of operate on its own mm-hmm. to some degree and be consistently profitable. And, so, and I don't want to have to work seven days a week, which I still do. Like I work on weekends, mm-hmm. I work at night. Um, and it's, it's, a and I'm, my kids are teenagers and soon they'll be moving out. Like I'm losing a lot of time with them because of this business and I'm trying to fix it all. I'm trying to improve it. And it is moving very much in the right direction. Like there's been a big turnaround. It sounds like similar um, to the changes that you made once someone drew your attention to the problem. Yes. Like how, how you're relating yes, to so people big, in the same way. When someone was like, right. dude, you're losing money every year. And that is not a business. Right. And you said, oh, okay. Yes. What's pathetic, what's pathetic is that it might seem obvious <laughs> from the outside, but when you're in it, right, when you're in it and I'm worried about, okay, what do I need to do that You've got day, lines, right? I've got 15 yeah. projects. I've got to do these emails. I got to make these phone calls. I got to get this thing, blah, blah, blah. Like I completely lose sight of like the big picture. Mm-hmm. And that's something that my wife always tells me is like, stay focused mm-hmm. on the big picture because architects are very detail oriented, mm-hmm. you know? So I care about like these, well, how am I going to do this little minutiae, right? How is this going to get done? And, and I think a lot about the logistics, like what what's the structure of my day going to be? And she's like, fuck all that. You need to completely divorce yourself from that and think, what's my cash flow going to be for the next yeah. six months? And I'm like, Oh fuck. Now I have to actually think about something <laughs> that I don't want to, or that I don't want to have to necessarily deal with because it's so much easier and more comfortable for me to just deal with, well, I got to deal with these emails today. I'm, I'll, I'll have to worry about that shit later. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Carla. I didn't mean to cut you off. What were you going to say? No, I was just, I'm just, I'm just so um, inspired by how much you sort of ha- think about your own evolution and reflect on it and your own um, uh, sort of your own growth as a human being and as a parent and as a employer and business owner. And I mean, it's like, you know, a lot of people just go through things through the day and through their lives, kind of like I'm just doing. And I feel like you've got this great, you've had opportunities to reflect on things maybe your wife has been a huge part of that. It sounds like she's someone who she has, has been like, let's look at this. <laughs> but she's also like kind of an adversary too. Like we're always like, you know, we're like, it's not like all, uh, you know, whatever rainbows and unicorns with us. Like she's also an attorney. So like, fucking forget <laughs> it. like you're never going to win. You're never going to win. I'm never going to win. And it's like, I'm the defense. She's the, she's the plaintiff. <laughs> You know, that's our relationship. (laughs) But she's a great person. Yeah, I mean, she's my person. Like, she, like, without her, I wouldn't be any kind of the person that I am today, for sure. So, what a gift. It's cool. So, if you were to look at your life now from the vantage point of when you graduated from high school, how Uh much does your life now? look what you thought it would look like oh my god i have no idea i mean i don't think that that the that 
that person back then would recognize who I am at all for sure. Um, cause I feel like I'm radically different from how I yeah. was back then. Um, in term, Oh, what I can say is that back then I thought I would never have kids, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's, that's true. That, that is true. Like I, I thought that when I graduated, like I was going to be one of those people that would never in a million mm-hmm. years have kids. So the idea of having kids is, was a huge shift for mm-hmm. me, you know, mentally. Um, and I think part of that is just that I hated my growing up experience so much that I wouldn't want somebody else mm-hmm. to go through that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that that's kind of the biggest thing that comes to my mind is this idea that, that I would be a parent mm-hmm. is, is just, which would have been just so foreign and unimaginable to me back then. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, you know what, when you're not, it's you, you've got this incredibly interesting life. You've got clearly you're raising your kids and you're probably wrapped up a lot in the work that you do because you are, you do own your own business and you're taking care of all these people who work for you. Um, are there things and passions outside of work and family that you get to attend to, or is that just, um, not really. <laughs> um, the, what I do. So I like to play golf, but I haven't been able to play golf in a while because I, I've had a lot of back problems mm. and a lot of back surgeries. Oh, no. um, yeah, I've had I've had like five or six back surgeries over the past Ooh. like ten years. Yeah, I got a bunch of herniated discs, um, like kind of uh, I herniated discs, and they kept on reherniating and reherniating. Um, even when I was doing physical therapy and taking care of myself, it was just kind of a curse. Um, so I had to get a spinal fusion a mm. few years ago. And um, I'm glad I did. It was the best thing I had ever done. And now I'm back into the mode of trying to exercise and take care of myself. And um, so I want to get back into golf. The other thing I do out here, we, I play poker a lot, yeah. you know, when I can. Uh, I play in a lot of poker tournaments out here in L.A. It's kind of a there's a lot of poker casinos out here, up, mm-hmm. you know, poker rooms. So that was one of the things that I really got into. And I love playing and I play in tournaments whenever I can. I've been somewhat successful, somewhat, you know, I'm hoping to build on that success. And I've played in some World Series tournaments in, in Vegas and I haven't played in the main event yet, just more because you have to take like two weeks yeah. off to even have a chance. Um, and uh, that's about it. Like I try to spend time with my family as much as I can. I want to start playing golf again and just playing poker. Like that's about it. What do you, what do you, what do you like about poker? Why is that interesting to you? Um, well, um, I definitely have a very, I have a gambling personality. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Um, it's definitely a rush, but I think that, that it's, um, just a pure adrenaline rush, but I, but it is kind of a good, it's a fun intellectual, exercise mm-hmm. right you get to you get to kind of like try to read people and yeah. and make decisions based upon your intellect and your gut like kind of at the same time and and um i don't know it's hard for me to describe but when i'm there when i'm playing like i just feel like it really like i get motivated to mm-hmm. go play like mm-hmm. i'm really into it i really love it I, if I if I could snap my fingers and just play poker forever, I would. That's so cool. I'm not a poker that. player, but I'm really interested in like poker players. Um, and I think um, I love Annie Duke. I think she's an interesting woman. And sure. 
Um, not the nicest human being in the well, world. Well, I've read her, right. I don't, I, I'm not talking about like wanting I've to hang out. I've played with her before. You have you? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I play, honestly, when you play in LA, you play with everybody. Like you see all the famous That's people. That's so cool. I've played with a lot of them. That's yeah. so cool. But I think it's such an interesting, I think it's such an interesting game because it really is, uh, it's sort of partly about the cards, but it's also really about the people you're playing with and paying it attention is. to very humans. It is, very much so. So I think yeah. it's interesting. You have to be very in tune and in the moment, and it's everything is extraordinarily situational, mm-hmm. uh-huh. right? So not to sound too zen about it, but the but but if you're not in the moment, like at every moment of a hand, then and you're and you're detached. If you're not, yeah, if you're just not immersed in the moment, you make mm-hmm. mistakes, right? Uh-huh. Um, and even if you don't make mistakes, it can still work out badly for you. But you have to be a hundred percent in that moment. You can't thinking about the. You cannot be thinking about the next hand or what's going to happen later or how much money you're going to win. You know, if this or that happens, you have to kind of shut all of that stuff out. So I would say that that's part of the reason why I really like it. Yeah, my son Jackson loves to play poker, and I keep saying, "Oh, it's him, a blast!" Oh, I don't. play with the, I, our family <laughs> plays. Like we'll play at night at home. Like I've taught my kids how to play, and and I really look forward to the day when my daughter turns twenty one and I take her to you know to go play in her oh, first poker so tournament. Like, I really look forward to. That. Oh yeah, it'll be a blast. And she's really good. She's smart. She's a smart kid. Is she in college locally, or is she? She's in the process of uh, applying for transfers to either UCLA or USC. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cal State Northridge, like a b- bunch of the local schools yeah. out here. Yeah. So she just lives with us, and uh, that's great. You know, she's going to do that, and I, I'm kind of uh, my son too is having having all sorts of problems with school. He's been out of school. He does. He has like this uh, a major kind of anxiety, school avoidance problem, and we're looking for a program to get him into, but. <laughs> Basically, I'm just resigned to the fact that our kids are going to live with us forever. Yeah. Like, that's what's going to happen. And we're going to build, honestly, I'm not kidding. We're building like a, like we have enough room on our lot where we can just build like a little second mm-hmm. dwelling unit. Yeah. So we're building a little second dwelling unit and, and we're just going to have our kids live there until <laughs> until we need to be taken care of, is my guess. You know, the family compound idea is, is something that uh, I've thought about too, both for my parents because we still get uh-huh. along and also for my, for, you know, having our kids around too, you know, I think. And don't you have like 15 have kids or something like seven that? Seven <laughs> Close. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think I, I'm really struck by how balanced you are in your thinking about the mental health struggles and their talents. I think, uh, my kids have all struggled. We, my oldest in particular, has been um, inpatient in mental health facilities. I mean, probably like oh, three yes. years since. Yeah, I mean. Oh really? Been, and you know what it's like, bro. And he's doing a lot better now. But the reason he's doing a lot better is he and I just finally let go of the timeline. It's like you know what. If you're exactly. not going to be in school right, right now, that's fine. So, exactly, but, which is a very hard thing to do. It's, it's super hard. hard. And it was real hard in high school because I was so focused on him getting through high school in a certain amount of time. And then when he went to college, um, you know, last in his sophomore year, he just had a complete 
breakdown and um, thankfully survived it and was hospitalized sure. a long time last last spring. And this year he's not in school. He's working full time. Yes. At a super low stress job. He's a cashier at HEB, which is this phenomenal grocery store chain in Texas. He interacts with people all day long. He lives next door to my sister. He adopted oh, that's good. a dog who is the biggest pain in the ass dog, but they're great for each other. And um, no, that's good. the difference in his everything, it's just night and day. And I think at some point, yes. you know, he may go, you know what? I want to go back to school and I, and he'll have so much more ability to know himself and weather the stresses. And to be able to yeah. handle it. My, yeah, I mean, I was at my 15-year-old school today talking about how do we design an 11th and 12th grade course schedule for her that is not going to kill her with stress. It's just, it is oh. so stressful. Um, so That's what's happening with my son right now. My son's 16. He essentially hasn't been in school for about two years, you know, and... And I kind of gave up this notion that, okay, he's going to graduate high school mm -hmm. when he's 18. Like, that's done. That's not happening, right? My wife still struggles with that. Cause she still tries to, like, you know, she was, like, struggling to just, like, at least get Ds in some of his classes mm -hmm. so that he could um, get passed for those classes so he doesn't have to retake them. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I got into, you know, heated arguments with her. I'm like, look, that is not what's happening here. Casey is not going to do the work. Mm -hmm. He can't handle it. And he's just not going to, he's going to have to take these over eventually. He might even have to just drop out of high school and get a job, you know, like. Well, I, I feel for you and yeah. for Lori and for your kids. Mm -hmm. And one of my mantras has been just like, I got to just keep them alive till they're 25 because it really does get better. Exactly. It really does get better. And there is no yeah. rush. I mean, you've been yeah, there's no adult rush. and adult it's not your a whole adult life. Why rush into yeah. it? Yeah, I would much rather him like coast for a long time and find something that he's interested to do by the time he's forty or fifty. Just as long as he finds something yeah. eventually and just get him there. Like I just want to get him there so that he can do that, so he's a, a, able to mm -hmm. find something that really helps him live a good life. You know? Yeah. Like, well, both your kids sound really lucky to have absolutely you and that support. Dude, they're so fucking they're lucky so to have us. <laughs> They're so lucky. And we tell them that constantly. Like, you don't know how fucking lucky you are that you have parents that, like, do all this shit for you. Because we didn't. You know, like, yeah. we, my wife didn't. Her parents were checked out. My parents were only about themselves. Like, we, you know, we didn't have that. And that goes towards, like, how we raise them. Like, we are there for them, right? We're there. We try to do stuff for them. We try to help them, you know. Whereas back in our days, we were, like, on our own, you know, I feel like I kind of raised mm -hmm. myself, you know, and I think that, that my ability to change and my ability to kind of like, you know, be introspective and stuff like that comes from the fact that I just had to figure shit out on my own and, and raise myself yeah. in a way. All right. Well, we'll jump All into, right. uh, to the flash round. Carla, do you want to yeah. get us started on this well, section? You did a little bit of this. Um, maybe a little reflection on yourself back in the day, but um, you know, is there anything else that you sort of remember about yourself as a student, what you were involved in, what, what, 
what you sort of pictured yourself, how you pictured yourself in, in high school. Oh, God. Well, I look back on, on a lot of that stuff with extraordinary embarrassment. Because <laughs> I feel like I was acting out a lot and trying to get attention. Right. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stuff that I did was like that. So like one example, and I, I like it mortifies me to even bring it up because I don't want anybody to ever look at it. And I want to get rid of all traces of it is like my yearbook page, for instance. <laughs> like, don't even fucking look at it, please. <laughs> It's so embarrassing to me because I, I was just trying to be all political and like, yeah, like, fuck the system, like kind of shit. And um, so a lot of the stuff that I did back then, I feel like that that's was like the through line of just like kind of acting out or, or getting attention or like doing stuff to like shake it up or whatever like that. So I don't. Yeah, <laughs> it's embarrassing. <laughs> Stuff I was involved with. Maybe like, that maybe volleyball. that explains his senior will. Yes, which so, is that so you you left. We it. looked what? at your. We looked at the yearbook and we looked at your senior page. Oh God! No, there's some. <laughs> there's there's some. There, there's a great. You were 18 years old or 17 years old too. Let's like yeah, let's I know, all keep it I in know. mind. Looking <laughs> back, still, that, we can come back to that. But you were about to say, what else were you involved in in high school? Um, I remember volleyball. Yeah. I loved volleyball. I was really into volleyball, so I played that a lot. Um, drugs. Did lots of drugs. Um, thank God, by the way, for that shit. That was my only escape. Um, what else? I don't really remember. Just hang out a lot with, like, I, I mean, I remember a lot about just, like, going out, hang out with Brad and Dan Willis and, you know, Kevin Cole and those guys, mm-hmm. Jeff Eaton. Um, that, that was a lot of my time. I also had this girlfriend, Sherilyn, which is another embarrassment to me. Um, that was a horrible relationship. And, uh, <laughs> that one was, uh, not her fault. <laughs> like that was hundred percent me. Like, I don't know if she didn't listen to this, but, that, but that was, uh, that was another memory I care to kind of like push the wayside. All right. Well, you've <laughs> spoken it. Now you can release it. It's gone. Yeah. Okay. Let it go. Let it go. Actually, this is kind of funny. Today, my youngest daughter, Piper, pulls up her Instagram reel or her Instagram page. And she had locked herself out of it somehow and then gotten back in. And she was looking at it and she said, Mom, why did you ever let me dress this way? Like she was talking about like the mortifyingness of whatever phase she was in. And I wasn't looking at it. So I don't even know what what it was. But I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean that I let you dress that way? How? I I wish you had just, I would have rather have you put me in like Lululemon leggings. I'm like, (laughs) you would have never worn that. And like, you know, I just think it's funny how we look back on ourselves with this element of like just being mortified. Like, I had a denim jacket back then that I really liked to wear that was like all burnt and it had holes in it I and that. I had like drawn all over it and I was like oh this is so rebellious but it was just <laughs> embarrassing like in retrospect yeah. right but that's like part of being an adolescent is being able to look you know look back I don't on that know. stuff and be like oh how cringy <laughs> yeah but I mean Sometimes if a parent can say, hey, this is pretty cringy, bro. Like, you need to do something. <laughs> there, there are mistakes and there are mistakes, right? Like, if somebody just said, like, okay, like, 
Maybe that's not as rebellious as you think it is. <laughs> yeah. I just think I, I don't think I had any sense of like style. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm just saying, if I had said anything to my child, she would have been so upset, and I would oh, totally. <laughs> yeah, pick your battles, right? <laughs> All right. You want to get to the flash round? Let's I don't do know. Okay. <laughs> sure. Go ahead. Okay. We have ten questions. We usually ask. Um, everyone, they kind of change up a little bit, but we are going to ask you 10 questions. And if you want to answer them, um, just straight up, you can always pass. If you want, you can lie, whatever, (laughs) whatever works for you. Um, but number one is who was your high school crush? I remember I had a big crush on Laura Cade. She's crushable. She's super crushable. Okay. Question two (laughs) from your, your book page. There's a multiple oh choice question. Which, oh, God. <laughs> what would you get if a Flintstone kid and a rainbow bread iron kid had a child? One, a U.S. steel metal alloy kid. Two, an athletic Jetson. Or three, a mutant Campbell's kid. <laughs> uh, that was on my yearbook yes, page. Sir. Oh my god! Completely blocked. <laughs> that shit. I'll go for. I'll go. For, oh my god! Oh my god! Please burn that shit. Man. Um, three. All right, a mutant Campbell's kid. And as a follow-up, yeah. your senior bill oh, says, no. "Aaron Broomer leaves behind a path of destruction." <laughs> Any comments? Yes, yes, I, I certainly did. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. I you know the evolution of Aaron even in, at the academy was a little bit of going from kind of pretty squeaky clean in in uh, your younger years. Oh, it was night and day. I, I'll tell you what happened there. Like <laughs> and a lot of people might even know the story, but I. Um, uh, the summer after our junior in high school, I went to Carnegie Mellon in an architecture program. Mm-hmm. Like I did a summer mm-hmm. program in architecture at Carnegie Mellon. It was a six-week program, and and um, it was my first time being away from home for any longer than a few days, right? And um, I, it was like being trapped in a prison and then free going to Carnegie Mellon. There were no rules. It was like being in college, like a uh, over a, like a year mm-hmm. early. So that's when I first started drinking, um, doing drugs, hooking up with girls. Like it was like I went from zero to a hundred in like a six week period. I got my ear pierced. You know, um, uh, I was doing. I started smoking. Like that was like a huge thing for me. Like I completely changed overnight, and I came back an entirely different person. You know, and then I started to have a social life, started having fun. Um, I was doing a lot of self-destructive shit too, extremely self-destructive. And uh, yeah, that was, that was the catalyst for me to just like, it was like all this years of repression and and like not having a social life and not having any experiences. And a lot of that was just being afraid to do, do a lot of that stuff. And then I was in an environment where everybody was doing it and it felt safe. And I was like, why am I so afraid to have a sip of beer, you know, like, why am I so afraid to, to try a cigarette, which was a horrendous mistake, but because I was addicted immediately and have struggled ever since. But 
but but it was a complete radical overnight change for me and i completely completely transformed Mm. but a lot of that was manifested through self-destructive behavior Mm. too you know um i was self-mutilating i was you know i just um just being reckless Mm. you know like doing a lot of reckless Mm -hmm. stupid shit Mm -hmm. you know and it's amazing i i kind of survived any of that stuff i'm glad you did did. (laughs) okay question number three what 80s fad trend or or sort of, you know, thing, 1980s thing were you sort of into? Do you remember? Okay, so this is really embarrassing, too. But I remember in eighth grade, um, I know it's not high school, but it's all one big, yeah. you know, yeah, six or 12 for me. Um, I was really into, like, those the those Miami Vice jackets, like the... Um, the uh members only uh, no 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 i wore members only but i really liked the Neighbors like what what's his face pocket where on miami vice so i kind of dressed like that for a little while did you have a pastel awesome. blazer and you rolled up the cuffs oh totally absolutely there are pictures of I me that i have that. of that i it's wish that would come back yeah absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> i think it's a holiday i still listen to a lot of like 80s like new wave music yeah. for sure I still love New Order and, and uh, Joy Division and stuff like that. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Hold hold tight okay. on the music. We're going to get your, okay. your playlist. Okay. Sure. Question okay. four. What car did you drive in high school and how did it meet its okay. demise? So I drove my mom's Toyota Camry. This is also a huge, big problem that I had with my parents, which was which is also kind of stupid too, because I was working, I could have just bought myself a car, but I kind of wanted my parents to like, they never got me a car. Um, and they wouldn't let me get on their insurance. Even if I did, they were like, we're not paying for your insurance. So I felt like kind of trapped, like I couldn't have a car. Um, and that was a huge, huge, um, point of contention between me and them. Um, cause again, I felt like they were trying to keep me in their little prison. Um, so, but yeah, it was my mom's Toyota Camry and I fucked that thing up so badly so many times. Like I would drive it off the road. I would hit curbs. I would go a hundred miles an hour over speed bumps and shit like that. And, um, I don't know that it ever met its demise. I think that my parents just kind of got rid of it and got a new one. <laughs> Ooh, I'm glad you survived. Me too. Um, okay. Question number five, this goes back to the music question. So if you could think of a song in particular, it could be a band, but in particular a song, it would really have been on your high school, you know, your, your sound, the soundtrack for your high school years was on your mixtape playlists. What do you think it would be? Um, back then I was listening to a lot of punk and, mm. and um, that's what, what we were mainly listening to. Um, listen to a lot of seven seconds like seven seconds is like a band that 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 i remember really loving a lot and uh the descendants you know the descendants sour grapes is actually kind of like one of my favorite songs from that back Oh, no, okay, well, uh, never mind, see you later. Hey, you new wave, come over here. 
teacher had the greatest influence on you oh easy easy question martha mensch by far you know and i actually i actually um uh wrote to her not uh when when, when facebook became a thing and everybody was starting to get on facebook i became facebook friends with her and i wrote her this long message saying that she by far had like the greatest influence on me than any other teacher i had not to take anything away from any of the other teachers like you know marsh spencer and and some others, but um, but but Martha by far was the best. Well, teacher why was that? I don't school. think I ever took a class with her. What did she teach? No. So okay, so what was interesting about her is that she took a very holistic approach to teaching Spanish. It wasn't like learning the language. It was like we're going to read all this literature, and a lot of that was because of the curriculum for AP Spanish Lit and Lang. But but. It was it was more of like a cultural under like she gave you so much cultural understanding mm -hmm. of things. Mm -hmm. We watched movies. We watched, um, you know, we read all of this literature. We learned so much about, you know, just the general culture in Spain, South America. Mm -hmm. um, she was just incredibly smart, gifted teacher, and um, I admired her uh, tremendously. And the other thing that I kind of empathized with her was, or or like she had such a bad rep reputation before I took her classes. Like people were like, oh, we don't like Martha or whatever. Um, Miss Mess. She, but it was completely unjustified. She was a fantastic mm. person. Um, and uh, I think that she got just a really bad reputation at the academy for no reason. And it was like taking like an advanced college course, yeah. you know, with her. Very you know? cool. I, lo I, lo I love hearing when a, a teacher that I never had just shows up in these mm -hmm. interviews. And it reminds me that like one of the great things about schools like the Academy is that you found your person, you know, you found your, you found your adult totally. who was going to be, and didn't have to be the adult that someone else loved. And there were some teachers who were very popular and some that were a cult of personality and some who yes. were different, you know, but I just love, I love it when I hear a, a name that I haven't, that I just didn't expect. So that's cool. Um, okay, number seven. What artifact from your high school years should you have put in a time capsule that really represented you in high school? I think that denim jacket. Yeah, I think that denim jacket. That would have done it. All right, that's awesome. What was an academy ritual or tradition that you either loved or hated? <laughs> oh, God. I can't think of any. I can't remember. Any, I can't remember any traditions or rituals. Well, I remember there was that thing about not stepping on the seal when you walk through the admin building. Sure. I was like, seriously. Um, <laughs> but I can't really think of anything else. I remember the dumbest thing that we ever did at the academy. Do you remember the hands across the academy? Do you remember that? <laughs> no. You don't remember Hands Across Academy? No. Oh, my God. It was the dumbest fucking thing that that school had ever done. Because it was, I don't know if you remember Hands Across oh, yeah. America. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? So, along Wyoming, we did a Hands Across Academy. Okay? And that was truly, I, I was just like, this is the dumbest <laughs> place. I don't, 
I'm sure like, it must have participated in this, but I don't really... thing we could ever do. <laughs> it was just like for, I don't know why they even did it. There wasn't even any press coverage of it. So like, like what, why, why did they even do it? It was so stupid. <laughs> I remember a giant lap sit around the track. Didn't we do that? I don't remember I don't that either. <laughs> maybe that was, maybe was a school I worked at, but I feel like we did a lap sit around the track. I don't know. All right. Uh, okay. Um, if you could go back in time and tell your high school self something about the future, what would it be? Um, hmm. That, that going back to what we were talking about, Jessica, about how like, it's not a race, right? That there's time that you have time. Because mm-hmm. um, I was always just so driven to like move on to the next thing. Um, and do this and do that and get there and get that, like to, to just try to change your way of thinking about that, Mm -hmm. that it doesn't, it's not a race. We did. We marched through stuff, didn't we? Yeah. Very driven. And there was like, you had to do things in a certain order and a certain. Exactly. And this is your path. And I think that part of the reason why I went into architecture is because of that, is Mm -hmm. that it was just like, this is my, I, I'm doing this and I'm going to. Like I'm in this realm of architecture and I just need to go to college and then go to grad school and then become an architect. Like I never really questioned that pathway or that timeline. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something I would have changed in retrospect. Awesome. This is our last question. What would be the title of your high school memoir? (laughs) (laughs) Um, God, (laughs) my high school memoir. Um, Probably like something to the effect of just try to get through it. <laughs> or just trying to get through it. <laughs> That's about the best I can get come up with. That's right. Oh my god. The path of oh destruction. God. <laughs> god. Seriously, I'm you know what? Bring that yearbook with you. Everybody who's listening to this, bring that yearbook with you and I want you to tear out that page. <laughs> give me the page, okay, so I can verify. That it's been destroyed. Well, the problem okay, is, and I is that Jessica is on the back side of that page. So if they tear out Too you, bad, they tear out Jessica. Oh, no. That's who I'm next to. Okay, so we can just like do a black marker on it or something. That's right, like a paint roller. We can just paint roll over it. Yes. Please. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wall. By the way, I can't wait for the oh. reunion. I, I look forward to these reunions so much. Like it's like a big highlight oh, of my life. Me too. I hope yeah, that, I hope really that Lori fun. will come. Yeah. No, no. She doesn't want to and I don't want All right, her to it's go. Time. Mark's never Mark's never <laughs> gonna come to my reunion again. He's no, like, no way. No way. He's, he Fuck went that. like we one time. He was like, I do not need to be around this nonsense. <laughs> and you totally. don't and you don't want me. Now I think I am gonna bring Piper and I think Jessica's gonna bring Leah so that they can hang out together because they became buddies this summer when we took them to the era's tour well, my but, new oh, husband cool. is actually really interested to come because he's listened to the podcast. oh oh i'm sure my yeah. ex-husband really got, wouldn't got, have bothered but <laughs> <laughs> but my yeah. new husband's really interested yeah. so i might have i might have yeah. him accompany me that's great yeah. i actually had a really good conversation with the last one with chris boson's wife whose name I can't remember, but she and I hung out uh, quite a bit that night and had a really good talk. Cool. So cool. It's cool to meet the spouses, but for sure. But I don't want mine around. No way. 
Yeah. Well, I'm trying to get Chris Boson to come on, and I've I've pinged him several times. So reach out to him and tell him to come. I will. I'll yeah, tell him. We, tell him. We tell him. A little peer pressure to get him on. Yeah, we have so many musicians in our class, and you know Chris is really still playing, and um, I'd love to talk to him about that and about uh, his life. He's, he's got an in DC. Life for yeah. Sure. His, yeah, yeah, he's got an interesting yeah. life. That's awesome. Well, it was so good to talk to you. Yeah, it was good talking to you. So and it's so cool up. that you guys are doing this, by the way. It's so fun. I uh, really admire the fact that you took this on and are doing I'm really excited to see you in the fall. Yeah, so am I. Yeah, yeah I'm really Thank looking forward so to it. Thank you so much. All right. All right. Thanks, you guys. This was great. So I enjoyed great. this. Bye. Take care. Thank you. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. Okay. Bye. Jessica and Carla's High School Reunion is written, directed, and edited by Carla Silver and Jessica Slade. Our theme music, True Sight, is by Jared Matt Greenberg. Please subscribe and listen on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.